Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the SLB podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, President of the SLB Cooperative. With me is Jeff Jordan and joining us as a special guest today, Scott Thornbury. With us today, we have the illustrious and almost universally respected Scott Thornbury, <laughs> author of countless books on ELT, including topics such as language, grammar teaching, methodology, and how to pass the CELTA, the co-creator of Dogme ELT, and a compelling speaker at almost every conference worth attending, and maybe even some that aren't. <laughs> and also back in the studio is Jeff Jordan, uh, bourgeois dilettante anarchist adventurist, <laughs> course book hater and Hugh Deller baiter, and now the newly crowned badly informed false guru of ELT. And I'm Neil McMillan, part of a rabble of sycophantic fanboys and fangirls of the false idol Jeffrey Jordan, <laughs> who is of course the true leader of the Barcelona co-op SLB, which is little more than a cult and worships no god other than Jeff, except perhaps for Mike Long. <laughs> <laughs> is that all right? Very nice. <laughs> Jeff, I thought we could start with this because I think we need to deal with it. I was complaining that things had gone too quiet when you had stopped tweeting and writing blog posts, but <laughs> you came well, back. I, I'm, I've, uh, I'm off Twitter now. I'm, 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 not that, that, that I'm, I'm very sorry that for the embarrassment it caused to SLB. I feel that I wasn't really the culprit, but in any case... Um, you know that's that's I'm done and dusted. I'm 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 no longer tweeting. I don't even think it's the tweets or the blog posts that have caused the recent stushy, Jeff. Um, but maybe more your article for ELTJ that was going to be well, it's going to be in the point counterpoint section, right? But some people have got access because they've got online subscriptions, and so this is your article attacking course books that has a response and then another reply from you and it seems to be your views there that might have been upsetting people more than anything what are we talking about here jeff elt i'm i'm not aware of these and i'm a subscriber oh oh um i uh, wrote an article with you know the, the usual two-year gestation period we need to talk about course books a famous quote is, uh, about McNuggets is, uh, is obviously in there. I think you're actually in the first paragraph, Scott. Oh, fabulous. Good. <laughs> so pleased. Well, spark this. Uh, it seems to me at the moment to be a little bit of a war, war of attrition between people who defend course book driven ELT or, or course books in general and people who attack them. Jeff, you've been accused of not being suitably informed of what contemporary course books are like that that you kind of kind of paint a caricature of course books that doesn't reflect reality and then we seem to go around in circles teachers some teachers feel attacked that if they use a course book that they are doing something wrong 
and which of course I don't think is the the point at all. And we don't seem to get much further forward. And I, I just wonder whether the the course book debate is really the the true debate in ELT at the moment in terms of trying to move things forward. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, Neil. I think there's an issue uh, and a confusion between the problem of course books per se, whether we should have books at all or whether we should. Uh, use different kinds of organization for language teaching courses like, uh, you know, content-based teaching or task-based teaching, etc. And then there's the argument that, yes, course books as they are is the problem. It's not that there are course books, but the course books uh, misrepresent the nature of language and the nature of language learning. And I think that's the position I would tend to take. I, I'm aware that course books have changed a lot in some ways, for example, there's there's more acknowledgement of the kind of lex- lexical focus in language than there used to be, thanks to the work of people like Michael Lewis. But they haven't changed radically in other ways. Like they still, most course books are still based around a syllabus of, gra- of discrete grammatical items in a particular order that's been handed down from time immemorial. And I think this does work as a constraint upon uh, language learning and teachers' creativity and uh, responsiveness to learner needs. So I'm not arguing against course books per se, as I say. I mean, I've, se- I've been in contexts where I can't imagine the teachers not teaching without course books. I've, I've watched classes in, for example, Ramallah, you know, in a refugee camp in Palestine where there's 30 kids in a room. The teachers are virtually volunteers. They would not be able to handle the situation they're in without having some kind of book. And, and that's the only aid they've got. The books are often shared and passed down from, from older brother to younger brother, et cetera. So, I mean, and also there's a culture of books in certain, you know, there's an education or culture, which if you stripped it of books, people would see it as not being educational. So there's all sorts of factors there that I think we need to take into account before we dismiss willy-nilly the role, the usefulness of course books. I do think in certain contexts that t- teachers would be better off without them. But those are the contexts that I'm perhaps more familiar with, small classes of motivated adults in private language schools. But, I mean, that's by far, that's the tip of an iceberg, or it's a very marginal kind of context, given that most teaching is done in large classes in public schools with uh, teachers whose first language is not English, yeah. uh, who feel Ill- very insecure anyway, probably, because of lack of training, because of the situation they're in, because of their own knowledge of English. And therefore, the course book is a useful tool. It can become a crutch, but that's the same with any tool. Scott, do, how would you get over the limitations of a course book in the sense that it uh, forces a teacher into a, a step-by-step, unit-by-unit presentation, practice, production kind of way of operating? Do you think you could make a course book that avoided McNuggets and avoided that kind of presentation and practice thing? What, what would the course book be like that you would, I mean, if assuming, of course, that publishers would go near it. But my problem is that, you know, it's difficult for me to imagine a course book that didn't kind of uh, contradict what we know about how people learn and, and you know, how would you overcome all the limitations we see in, in, the, in the classic general English course books? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, the problem with books, generally any kind of textbook in any discipline, is that it's kind of linear and invites teachers to work through in a kind of step-by-step 
uh, fashion and often the, the content is organized in discrete units. And yeah. I think even more now, the kind of general granularization of education across the board, this is not just in language teaching, but in all subjects where, where the content is reduced to bite-sized units that can be easily taught, but more, more importantly, they can be easily tested. This is the direction, I think, this is where we're going. And I think you could argue that, well, yes, English language teaching or language teaching generally has always kind of tended towards this granular approach, but it's been exacerbated now by technology, big data, adaptive learning kind of uh, uh, developments. Uh, to answer your question, then how do you, you know, roll it back, rewind as it were, where will we go? What kind of book will we have? Would we even have a book at all? Or would we have an online set of resources that teachers could choose from, that learners could access? I mean, there does technology would seem to offer an alternative to this kind of linear step-by-step -step approach. You know, when I, in my teaching career, there have been some innovations in course book design. I mean, I think when the communicative approach burst upon us in the late 70s, early 80s, there was attempts to redesign the syllabus at least, yeah. uh, and functions and notions, which actually did give teachers, I think, a, a new breath of life because suddenly the language became alive in the classroom. We weren't dragging out, you know, the students kicking and screaming through the verb phrase syllabus, but we were doing things like complaining, narrating, you know, inviting, yeah. requesting, and all that yeah. kind of thing, which was more fun. But it was still very discreet in a, in a sense in terms of its organization, even if it wasn't so easily testable. But that was an innovation which lasted exactly 10 years yeah. Uh, and then it sort of disappeared or that kind of functional language was relegated to the back of each unit, you know, the, the, mm. the everyday English kind of it, bit. Um, and we got back, we went what, way back to the traditional grammatical syllabus for all sorts of reasons uh, that I won't go into now. Um, but then there were attempts, I remember books which attempt to take a topical approach, a thematic approach. Um, they might have disguised uh, a discrete grammar syllabus within that approach, but basically teachers, you know, could just run with the topic if they wanted to. This was approaching a kind of a task-based approach or content-based approach. And of course, you know, teachers, individual teachers have taken initiatives to abandon course books altogether and replace them with content-based books. So, or I remember having on a diploma course, I was teaching a woman who taught up in your part of Catalonia, Jeff, I think she was working with a group of women and they all subscribed to a woman's magazine, which they got the print version of regularly. And that became the course book because they agreed on the content that they were most interested in reading. And so they, you know, so it's possible. But I mean, I think coming back to your point about what the publishers will be prepared to do, I think we're up against a massive <laughs> globalized industry here. I'm not, I'm not talking about, it's not like a conspiracy theory. It's just the fact is that course books will sell better if they replicate each other. Uh, and particularly if they replicate the grammar syllabus. So it's a kind of vicious circle. Nobody's going to, they're not going to budge just because a few people like us are howling in the wilderness. Mm. Jeff, do you want to respond to that? Yes, I, I, moving, I, I quite agree with you. It's, it, first, you know, it's like you say, if, if you've got 30 people in a classroom and very small resources, like, for example, you know, an extreme case in, in, in Palestine, you know, and the books are handed down and so on, I, I take that point completely. But the problem is, 
you know, in those sort of situations, I, I rather fancy, and from what I've seen of the Hands Up Project, for example, they, they actually do manage to get, get over that to some True. extent. And if you're using a kind of out-of-date course book, well, of course you supplement it and, it, and it doesn't restrict you in the way that a modern course book with all the, you know, the flutes and whistles and, and so on does. Are we, you know, <laughs> really just shouting in the wilderness? Is it really that sort of bad in the sense of David and Goliath that, that we're just, there is that, it, it, it's silly in a way. I, I, I sometimes get the impression, Scott, that you think it's really not worth, you know, shouting about this or, or, or wasting effort, perhaps, that's, a, you know, that um, one just has to kind of um, come well, to terms with and accept rather than fight this, um, the, the status quo, that it's really, it, it's just such an uneven battle that it's silly to suppose that real progress can be made. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think that's probably where we do differ, that I am prepared to compromise to a degree. And I mean, I think there's at least two approaches to the course book issue. I mean, if course books are not going to change, we can change the way that teachers use them through training, in-service training particularly, uh, and and help them think of ways of exploiting what there is there and adapting it for their own local needs. And teachers will be able to do this with more or less freedom, depending on their institutional constraints, their own abilities, their own beliefs and values, etc. I think we can do a lot. And I think it's interesting that you should mention the Hands Up Project. I remember talking to a teacher there working in Gaza with course books and I said how do you you know how do you make your teaching interesting he says I just turn everything into drama which is something he learned from the hands up project so you take any kind of uh, dialogue or whatever however mundane and pedestrian it is in a course book and however much it was designed to teach the present perfect continuous or whatever but you dramatize it you do improvisations based on it you do stuff which gets the kids using it. And so there's a measure of control over the content of the, of the syllabus, but there's a lot of freedom in the way that teachers interpret it. So mm. I, I think that's very important. That's the role of teacher educators and people who write resource books for teachers. And I, I mean, I declare an interest here because as you well know, I, I edit the series for Cambridge Handbooks, which is a, one of the few surviving kind of uh, resource book series left basically i mean there's a handful of publishers that still produce resource books for teachers but the idea behind these i think is also is to how to kind of not necessarily adapt uh, course book material but at least how to supplement course book material with activities which perhaps will engage the learners more directly and i think that is it's certainly one way to go so i'm what i'm saying is to answer your question yes we have got to accept that, that there's, there's this kind of behemoth of the course book sitting on top of us like a great toad, but that it is not something that would need cause us to despair or to take very radical action. We've got to perhaps live with them, but try to live with them in ways which benefit our students. First uh, comment just there that uh, what you were mentioning about dramatizing dialogues, it's very much what uh, Brian Tomlinson advocates, doesn't he? I mean, he's somebody who criticizes course books quite heavily but uh, takes this pragmatic approach of let's, let's, let's train teachers to do something more interesting with them and let's bring those, uh, you know, these stale kind of dialogues alive as much as possible in the classroom. I would just, my only criticism of that is that for all we teach 
or train teachers to turn the course book around, if you like, and, and put it in the service of, of students and, and their needs and what they need to be able to do with the language. There seem to be plenty of contexts, and, and we know teachers, in fact, we train teachers as well, who, who are in, in situations where they can't do anything. Their, their hands are tied, and the course book is the excuse for that in a, in a sense that they have to get through every unit in a kind of linear fashion, and students are going to be tested on uh, discrete items from the course book. So it just seems to me that it's fantastic to do that for teachers where they are able to do something and where they have some freedom, but we need to acknowledge that in, in many contexts, they don't. And I think it'd be a, a very interesting study for someone to do is to try to look at how course books are used around the world and, and find out exactly, you know, where, where people do have freedom and, and where they, they, they don't. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my counterpoint to that. I don't know if you want to follow up on that. but Well, I, I, can I just say that I think you're absolutely right. And it, I, I was, uh, while doing an uh, article and also, you know, general work I'm doing looking at course books, it is very uh, disappointing that there aren't more studies or exactly what you say, Neil, of seeing how uh, teachers actually use a course book in, in various contexts. So I think it would be really good if um, we could get some more uh, data and more studies done on that and I just remember when I was in um, teaching you know, in, in the 80s we, ha- we used to have conferences at, um, with other schools and I remember one of the teachers in one of the schools saying that the director prescribed a course book for each level and was known to actually jump into the room uh, uninvited and unexpectedly to to check that the teachers were on precisely the page that they they should be and the unit they should be. So I I just to reinforce your your point that some teachers have very little room for manoeuvre that they're, you know, I agree with you. Yeah, and I can tell you that there was one teacher on our TBLT course, the first one we ran earlier this year, who had precisely that done to them. And that, yeah. was in a, that was in a school in Catalonia. And yeah. it's, you know, and obviously there's, you know, I've taught in schools here that allowed freedom and which didn't. And obviously there's a big variation there. But it's interesting, you know, that is obviously one thing we can do. Where, where teachers have freedom to adapt the course book, then obviously they need to be trained in how to do that uh, in the way that Scott described. We, we bat for uh, a more task-based approach where uh, the teacher is supported by banks of, of tasks and materials uh, to help them because we don't think teachers should be left to implement a kind of task-based approach, approach on their own. They're not paid enough. They're not given preparation time. We certainly recognize the argument that where a teacher doesn't get paid to prepare, then the course book's the best, you know, possibly the best solution. But we think that can be replaced by principled banks of, of tasks and materials, although we get attacked by saying, well, how is that going to be better than a course book? I think maybe we can address that another time. But also, Scott, we still, um, I mean, I'm speaking about the teachers in our cooperative and teachers that we know, we're still very much taken with uh, the dogma approach. And uh, we use some kind of version of that in quite a lot of our classes, especially those classes that are maybe they're, they're harder to identify specific needs that are in common between the students and therefore making task-based uh, a more difficult uh, way to do things. So, Jeff, you wanted to ask about dogma as well. I just think it's been how long now since... You, uh, um, nearly 20 years. Nearly 20 years. And how do you see it now? Do you, it, was it a fad? Was it, is it something that's lasted? I think for us, it's, it's something that's still relevant. How do you see it? 
Well, first of all, just to quickly retrace, it was never kind of introduced as being as a methodological alternative to the current paradigm. It was a way when we started dogmatizing, if you like, our teacher training courses for in-service teachers in International House Barcelona. It was a way of trying to free them from the constraints of the course book where they could so as to be consistent with what we still valued in those days, and I still do, which is the basic principles of the communicative approach, that yeah. you learn a language by using it and you need to use it. You can't use it if all you do is know the, you know, the rules of the grammar, etc. And it seemed that where there had been a reversion, as I said before, back to a kind of methodology and a syllabus that predated the communicative approach, uh, and I was there when, the, as I said, when the communicative approach burst upon the world and, and bliss it was in that dawn to be alive. I mean, it really changed my teaching radically and my whole attitude to teaching. Um, so I wanted to retrieve some of that uh, in through teaching unplugged dogma or whatever. It was not meant to be a prescriptive method, of course, but, you know, these things happen. I think what's interesting is in the light of all that, in some ways the situation has got worse rather than better because of the global course book, as I say, be, be self-replicating, being perpetuated on a massive scale in ways that have completely saturated the market, but also because of the reasons you pointed out, that the appalling conditions that many teachers teach under, which compels them to have to teach, you know, 30 hours a week and doesn't give them any planning time, it doesn't pay them for planning. But also the technology has, of course, added immeasurably to the amount of resources that are available for teachers. And and so, you know, to, to, to suggest to teachers that they actually need to, they could use fewer resources and get better results seems anathema in this day when we're so totally well, if you like, or over-resourced. Where are we now 20 years down the line? What's interesting is that, you know, I go to places like, I was in Russia earlier this year to, and I did a weekend seminar on, on dogma because that's what they wanted. And for me, it was like resurrecting some of these basic principles and dusting them off for these teachers in Russia. I mean, they knew more about it than I did. I mean, they'd been putting it into practice consistently in their classrooms in a variety of different contexts in public and private schools. They were signed up <laughs> card carrying dogma. I was amazed. Mm. These people had no, compunction about saying yeah yeah we need to we need to build more content into our lessons based on the students own interests and contribution i mean that was the bottom line and they did this in their own particular ways and sometimes they had to use course books and sometimes they did this via course books the topics and course books etc and so it it wasn't like they'd adopted a completely dog, dogmatic approach or even a communicative approach, but they had absorbed principles of dogma into the teaching, which absolutely left me gobsmacked. I mean, really, seriously, these people were, 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 were really impressive. And I don't know, it's, the thing is, the other thing is about dogma is that anybody who's researched teacher development or teachers career trajectories over any length of time discovers that this is a this is where people most teachers get to in the end they become much more responsive teachers you know because once they've learned the techniques and once they've learned and once their language analysis skills start to be able to deal with the kind of unexpected then uh, it's the natural way to go it's just more interesting more fun and requires less planning uh, and so, you, you know, it's, and this doesn't mean to say these teachers are lazy or they're any less good than they used to be. They're just better at integrating learner content into the teachers. So many people said to us in the earlier, oh, dogma, I've been doing that for years. Yes, yes, 
Mm. Yes, I know. But this is the thing about dogma is that it kind of gives you permission to do that. It rubber stamps, it gives it a name mm. and that's all. So like, you know, I keep saying this, it was nothing that we were doing that was just actually radical or new, but it was, it was assembling a body of current theoretical knowledge, which suggested that yes, that's actually okay. You're not going to do students any damage by extending the, the, the opening chat into the whole lesson, if that's the way the students want to go. Right. But I think in principles, you know, because I think it's a criticism sometimes of some teachers, they just, they just chat with the, with the students, but that wasn't really what Dogma was proposing. It was proposing pulling back at times from the conversation, doing some language focus, perhaps, you know, introducing a little bit of controlled practice on the fly and then coming back to it. Right. I mean, I think this was, this was the difference between just going in and chatting with your students. Yeah. Absolutely. Winging it in a principled way, maybe. That. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody once described it, 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 it was winging it as an art form. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that was the thing that we tried to work back into the conversation about dogma 10 years down the line after that very active discussion group online with people contributing lots of ideas and criticisms as well was trying to say, well, hang on, hang on, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, there is still, and I think task-based learning also followed the similar kind of trajectory. It went from being completely hands-on, just just do it, do the task, no no feedback, no correction, no whatever, right. yeah. to a more, to integrating a focus on form. And that's where I think, can, you know, orthodox task-based learning, if there is such a thing as orthodox task-based learning, is at now so that you integrate a focus on form. But the starting point uh, is not the focus on form. Mm. Now, you made an interesting, an interesting observation about dogma is something, you're pronouncing more like dogma, aren't you? Maybe that's like a Catalan well, <laughs> the, Dan- the Danish pronunciation. Apparently. It's the e neutra. I'll, I'll, I'll say dogma as well then. Um, yeah. uh, that dogma perhaps requires teachers who have a sufficient level of language awareness and, and kind of analytic skills um, and experience to be able to, to know when to intervene, to, to recognize when a student's trying to say something and perhaps could say it better. Uh, or needs needs some kind of reformulation, and it's often argued that the kind of introductory training courses that we have mm-hmm. aren't capable of producing teachers uh, ready to do that because they're, you know, they're just too short, and that kind of language awareness it seems to be something that can just be built up lesson by lesson. You know, you you learn enough about the past simple to do a lesson on the past simple. Mm. And that's what it is. But you're someone who has written books on this CELTA, mm-hmm. um, help people pass it, a books directed at trainees, right? And, and wonder, trainees, yeah. Yeah. It's just something that comes up. We did a survey recently of, of teachers in Barcelona uh, about pay and conditions and about their thoughts about the industry. And, and one criticism that keeps coming back is we need to raise the bar of entry into the profession if we can call it a profession Mm -hmm. so it seems to be a contradiction here that um we have these very short introductory courses is is it all they do is all they're capable of doing really is is preparing teachers to be able to use course books is that where we're at i i think again it's this vicious circle thing i think that given that course books dominate most teaching contexts then any preparatory course is going to have to prepare them to use course books and so you sort of perpetuate the whole thing you could do a preparatory course which says, no, uh, this is how you could teach using dogma principles. And in fact, 
think we, I mean, I know colleagues uh, in, in Germany, for example, who've done courses based upon teaching unplugged principles, preparatory CELTA courses, and got away with it. And their argument would be, yes, it actually prepares the teachers to use course books better than they would had they not. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's possible, but it's innovative and perhaps risky uh, and might uh, risk face validity from the point of view of the trainee teachers. Now, one thing is, yes, you said, well, okay, let's make, let's raise the bar. Okay, so raise the bar on a preparatory course. You're going to make it impossible because it's going to be more expensive if it's longer, etc. You're going to you're actually going to reduce the, the entry uh, possibilities for you know your, your gap year teacher who wanted who wants to do a quick short and sharp course and do two two years in Vietnam or whatever and then come back and get a proper job. Well, I mean, that might not be a bad thing to kind of filter no, out yeah. all these gap year kind of people. But some of those gap year people were like me who started off doing it as a kind of, oh, let's see what this is like. I can travel and teach at the same time. And here I am still. Mm. And I'm very happy that I, <laughs> that I am. So I, I think we've got to be careful about making the – and also when you think of traditional teacher training, like university teacher training in many contexts, I'm thinking here in Spain, for example, it's like doing a three- or four-year degree in linguistics, philologia or whatever. Mm. You learn more about the language, but you don't learn how to teach the damn thing. You learn so much about the language that when you go into the classroom, you overwhelm your learners with all the, all the stuff, you know about phonemics and God knows what. I mean, this is not the way to go. The, one of the, the great things about the, the so-called four-week course when it burst upon the world, when the Haycrafts invented it in the 1960s in London to provide teachers for the growing international house world organization was that it did get teachers up and running, got them into the classrooms, made them actually more effective than the teacher who had done four years of linguistics. And then one hoped that then they got the institutional support to build on those very rudimentary skills to help them develop their language and awareness, develop their classroom management skills, uh, develop the way that they exploited or adapted their course book material so that they were they did continue to develop. And I mean, one of the things about dogma actually coming back to how it started was we were teaching diploma level, i.e. in-service teachers in Barcelona who had done their, their initial training, pre-service training in many of them in our institution. And we were seeing them on the rebound two or three years later down the line. We thought, but you know, you're still using the course book like you were using it on your, on your CELTA course. Haven't you moved on? You're mm. meant to. And so this is why we got sort of radical and said, well, look, listen, let's try doing a, a lesson without the course book. And of course, the teachers were, they just weren't ready for that. But it was an extremely exciting experience for everybody involved to see them, you know, fly out of the nest, as it were. So, I mean, I think this is, that was one of the th great things about dogma, if I may say so, is that it, as a, it didn't necessarily change the quality of teaching, but it changed the quality of teachers' professional development. It mm. gave them... A kind, and it's interesting that on the present day Delta, many, you know, you have to do an experimental lesson kind of thing. Uh, many people choose to do a, a lesson without material still as if it was like, wow, this is amazing and new and different right. 20 years later. But I find it quite gratifying that people are doing that. And then I, you know, one of the things that's most gratifying is going around the world. People come up and say, oh, yeah, I did my Delta experimental lesson. I used teaching. Oh, it was so 
you know, it was really blah, 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 exciting and uh, it's changed my team. So, okay, good, good. Well, that's great. That is great. Yeah. Anyway, I've gone long off the subject of teacher training, but you see what I mean? You've got a choice between a short, sharp introductory course of the CELTA type with all its problems, its untheorized, unproblematized dependence on course book materials, for example. And then you've got a, a four-year linguistics course, which is also equally problematic. I mean, problematic in different ways. Now, what's the choice between those that is affordable for right. your underpaid teacher? So the question is whether there's some kind of happy medium here. It's always been pointed out to me it would be commercial suicide to try to introduce something that was longer than a CELTA, get it accepted, get people interested. As you say, it would cost more for teachers to join up. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing if we lower the number of teachers entering the profession because I'm very concerned about paying conditions. I think in certain parts of the world, at least, it's the school managers that run the game and they've got lots of willing teachers to choose from. Um, and this has a you know negative effect, I think, on teaching English as a second language as a profession. True, true, Neil. But if you took away the CELTA or if you extended and made it more expensive, then people would just go on to those, <clears throat> do a three-day online course, which is even worse. Right. I mean, you know, people want to teach, want to travel and teach. They'll do it one way or another. Or they'll just turn up at a school and say, I'm a native speaker, employ me. And places will. I mean, right. they used to here in Spain famously, but they still do in, you know, Vietnam and wherever. Right. So you couldn't, you couldn't make a change in teacher training unless you had a simultaneous change in regulation of the sector, right? Exactly. I think this, 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 exactly. Is, this is the issue. And I think maybe this is where we, we need to push for things. If we want change in this, in this respect, we have to push for things at a state level uh, as well. Jeff, I don't know if you've got any comments on that because it seems to me, you know, it's, it's like attacking course books and I've done it plenty myself. Attacking the CELTA is, is quite an easy target, isn't it? But it's, it's perhaps less easy to think of a, a viable alternative. Yes, I, I, I quite agree with Scott. What should happen is that people, uh, teachers, should learn through experience. And Scott describes precisely what happened uh, in my case, and I think is. I did the uh, international house course in London with uh, Haycraft. And then I went to Spain almost immediately and I got a job. And um, after a year or so, I landed up in a decent school and they helped me develop. And you develop, and as Scott said, it was actually in you know, 1983 when, when CLT was really blooming. So I think it's perfectly um, reasonable to expect teachers to get ongoing teacher training in the uh, establishment where they work. So it seems to me that a preparatory course that gets them up and running and then they learn as they go along is a perfectly good model. I would just say that the, 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 the structure of the CELTA course and its content is, um, you know, could be improved. I'm sure uh, Scott agrees. And it's certainly the case when you talk to CELTA trainers, they say there's nothing in the, specific, the core specification that says you have to use a course book. The fact that just about everywhere does, doesn't stop the Scots example in Germany where they decided not to. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, I agree. I, I, I think um, it's better to have some elementary level pre-service course, and of course, a hundred times better than the absurd 
uh, university courses that one sees in China and Spain and, and all that. You know, now those are truly ridiculous if you want to be a, a language, an English language teacher. But the problem really comes back to the, uh, uh, you know, here we are again, the establishment that the fact that the course book is, um, represents such a handy tool for such a huge profitable um, industry that is ELT, that I, that's, that's essentially the problem. I would say, yes, I think the CELTA is, the idea of a four-week course is kind of, that's okay for me, uh, for the reason Scott says, that it's, you know, it, uh, to get you up and running. But I think the, 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 the content of the course could be improved, as I'm sure Scott would agree. But I, uh, I, I don't think that's really the root of the problem. The root of the problem is, you know, the, the whole establishment, the whole way that the commercialization of ELT, the commodification of ELT, that's the, 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 the root of the problem. And, and um, I quite appreciate Scott's uh, uh, reservation. You know, it's better to try and tweak it than, than to take it on full front and just as, as we try to do. It does seem to me, though, from the last few years, I have noticed that there is, at least I, I get the impression that there is, a bit more awareness of the limitations of, of where we are in ELT and a bit more interest in alternatives, interest in dogma, interest in TBLT, and so on. So I think, it, you know, there are, we shouldn't be completely pessimistic. It does seem to me that we are making a tiny bit of progress and that that's what we should continue to do and Scott's done more than anybody that I know of to, to help push teachers away from their you know reliance on on course books so really I'd like to ask Scott what are you what are you doing now Scott you know what are your current projects are you doing stuff that um well what are you doing <laughs> uh I'm doing a lot of more than I can, I should be doing, particularly from an ecological point of view, a lot of traveling and talking to teachers and doing workshops and things. So, uh, and that's, oh. that is my, because I don't teach anymore, that's the only direct contact I have with face-to-face -face classroom situations. And that's uh, extremely useful and gratifying. And as I said before, it's also involved kind of revisiting dogma because there's an insistence, particularly in ex-Soviet Union countries for some reason, for workshops on dogma. So I've done one in uh, weekend, one in uh, Kiev, one in Moscow, and I'm doing one in Belarus uh, in May. But what do they ask you to do? They invite you to come and you, you decide or they decide? It's basically, it's either a private, uh, usually a private organization which has a teacher training component and they invite me to come to do a weekend workshop of say about uh, six hours a day which actually kills me for about 50 to 60 or 70 people who sign up and pay uh, right. and the I give them a choice but normally I mean what the word has got out now that I do will do a dogma workshop uh, weekend it amazes me that people you know would want to sit through 12 hours of dogma but they do and it's extremely, and we do it in a kind of dogma-esque way, and it's with lots of hands-on activities. Uh, and that's what I do when I've got the energy to do it, and, uh, and I really, really enjoy it. So that's, yeah, that's what I'm sort of doing, apart from my day-to-day -day desk work, which is still teaching like you, I guess, on a, on a master's program online, and yeah. editing. That's books. in New York, right? 
Yes, exactly. So I used to go and spend the summers in New York teaching them face to face, but that's come to an end for various reasons, visas, etc. Uh, so I carry on doing that online, which is fine. It keeps me in touch with, again, with practicing teachers um, and editing books for Cambridge, which again is it has a very grounded classroom basis. So I have eschewed the route of research, PhDs, all that kind of thing. It's too late in my life now to pick that baton up. So I tend to I tend to move in the in the area where which directly relate affects practicing teachers. Can I try to bring some of these strands together? Because there seems to be there's a, a few points that have been made in the last couple of exchanges that I think relate to each other. First, I think before we trash uh, university teacher training courses completely, we do have our colleague Roger Gilabert at the Universitat de Barcelona, who I think is doing a fantastic job on a BA. There, it is philology anglesa or English philology as they call it here, but uh, they're doing a lot of task-based stuff. They're they're getting their students to design tasks, and and uh, it's a lot more focused on practicals. So, although we we know that sometimes when they when they go into the school system, they can't always implement that. But I think it's it is you know it's important to acknowledge that there are there are variations as well as well as there are variations in CELTAs where you might get one that just trains you how to use a course book uh, you make another one that's a bit more dynamic there are variations in those university courses as well yeah can i just say that i think there are some very good masters programs one year scott's uh, new school is obviously a, a good one lancaster does a terrific uh, variety of postgraduate courses so i you know, I'm making the distinction between a four-year <laughs> uh, undergraduate course, which I think is completely inappropriate, uh, but what I do think there are some excellent um, postgraduate courses. Right, but I'm just making the case that there might be some undergraduate courses that yeah. are, are uh, and uh, we know as well our, our friend Steve Brown in, in Glasgow or at uh, University of West of Scotland also is part of a, a BA in TESOL there, and I'm sure they're not just learning uh, language awareness for four years. The second thing, Strand, I'd like to pick up on is just this idea of a CELTA is good enough if then when teachers go into their institutions, they've got this uh, CPD element, that they've got encouragement, that they've got the chance to develop. And I think some of us have been lucky enough, Jeff, you mentioned it, that you've been lucky in that respect. I I personally was lucky in that respect, teaching in further education in Scotland. I was part of an environment where I was helped a lot after my initial training. And that's great. But we know that teachers in some situations aren't. And that maybe, Scott, the teachers that are coming to your uh, dogma workshops, did you say that they're kind of paying for it themselves? Well, they are or their institution is, right. uh, Neil. I mean, I don't know the, the details, but I mean, it's not cheap for people in countries where the salary is probably even less commensurate with salaries here, if you, if you can imagine such a thing. Exactly. And I think this is a, another big issue, isn't it? It's, it's uh, yes, institutions should be providing CPD for their teachers, but teachers shouldn't be having to fork out for, for it themselves. No, either. Can, a, yeah, can I just put in a word here? Because, I mean, we haven't mentioned institutions like the British Council, IATEFL, etc., mm. are often uh, bundled together. I know Jeff tends to as being <laughs> all part of this the commodification and commercialization of ELT. I was in Oman just two weeks ago at the behest of the British Council, and I went to three different countries in the Gulf, 
and I was doing workshops with teachers in the British Council, but I also did workshops, professional development workshops with people that the British Council works with local teachers, like for example in Oman, where they had we had an evening of 150 local teachers. This, that is to say these Omani teachers or Egyptian teachers or Palestinian teachers are teaching in Oman in state schools. Some of them had come for 150, 200 kilometers to this workshop and were going to go back that same evening. Now, this was all free professional development that's provided by the British Council. Now, we may, you know, decry or suspect the motives of the British Council behind this. This is all maybe part of, you know, imperialist initiative. But nevertheless, this is the only in-service professional development opportunity that these teachers have. And boy, do they take advantage of it. I mean, right. it was a fantastic evening. And that was just, it was really, really great. So... There are opportunities, there are organizations that sponsor this kind of thing for whatever their motives. And I think we need to applaud those initiatives, even if it is uh, organizations whose motives we might, as I say, suspect. No, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Uh, my point here is, though, just coming, it's coming back, I suppose, to uh, teachers' pay and conditions, because I think one way of, of solving this, if, if, if it's the case that institutions, we believe, should be providing CPD opportunities to their teachers, teachers should not be having to pay for that, either directly out of their pocket or in their time, which is sometimes the case, you're expected to attend a CPD workshop on your own time, and you're not paid for that time. This is where I think we, there's a strong case for greater unionization of teachers. I know we can't speak globally about this. I know it's a sticky topic in a lot of places, but if we'd stick to a local context. Scott, I think I'm right in saying that you've been a bit more vocal recently about encouraging teachers to unionize. Is that right? Well, I've only, uh, Neil, I just was invited to by uh, ELT advocacy groups in Ireland and mm. um, the TEFL Workers Union also asked me. For, I mean, I think I'm using uh, the chance of being on a slightly higher soapbox than some people so that I can help support kids. But, I mean, it's true. I meet part of this traveling. I mean, I remember when I went to Ireland a couple of years ago and I was shocked at the stories I heard about the conditions that these – and I was amazed that these teachers had put aside a whole weekend of their, their difficult lives and that has helped or has um, prompted me to kind of speak out perhaps. Although, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. It's about – about unions, but also it's about regulation of the industry. I know some countries have taken the initiative to set up institutional oversight, working closely with government ministries, etc., to, to ensure that the quality of English language teaching in that country, I'm thinking of Australia particularly, is of a professional standard. And that, that means that these schools are inspected and they Part of the inspection involves their provision of teacher development opportunities and, you know, how, who pays for this and how much time off the teachers have to do this kind of thing, et cetera. Now, it's through that kind of grassroots, that was a grassroots movement in Australia in response to a massive meltdown after the Chinese, well, after Tiananmen, in fact, in, the, in 1989, where they lost a lot of, well, a lot of students stayed on in China and but were not treated well by the language schools that had hosted them, etc. So this this precipitated a crisis, which in fact has benefited 
the English teaching profession there enormously. And it would be great to think that this could happen in other contexts. And it's starting to happen in places like Ireland because of the work, the grassroots work that, yeah. that uh, advocates are, are doing. So I, I think this is one of the promising trends. But as you say, it's, it's regional, it's local. It's something that's difficult to generalize across uh, widely different contexts. But it's a start. Sure, it's a start, and I think it's something we're trying to push for here. And we've got a project upcoming with Comisiones Obreras, and hopefully we're also going to be collaborating a little bit with teachers of Spanish as a as a foreign language in Spain, who are I think probably their situation is more akin to the teachers in Ireland. You know, they're they're based in the country already, and uh, they teach students coming over for short periods of time, and their conditions are perhaps even more precarious right. than than your your English teachers here. I mean, I just wanted to point out as well, we talked a bit about teacher training. I think it's not often said, but the positions of teacher trainers, as, as I'm talking about Spain, Catalonia, uh, I don't know about other places, is quite precarious as well. You know, you've got trainees coming in month to month. Uh, you never quite know how many hours you're going to be offered. And, you know, it's, again, it's, uh, it's often seen as a step up to, to go from, from teaching in the classroom to teacher training. And it is, of course, professionally, but it's not necessarily less precarious than teaching uh, regular classes. But I think, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're, we really like to see people like you, Scott, trying to promote this idea of unionization. We think certainly that this pressure from below, teachers getting organized, can, can influence decisions at state level. And Ireland's a fantastic example of that mm-hmm. as well. Listen, where's the beef, guys? You, should, you two should be... <laughs> there was this lovely photograph. I don't know who took it. Was it Jessica Mackay, maybe, uh, that, of you two having an embrace of some kind at the Innovate conference? <laughs> oh, I, was, I was spilling my coffee over it. <laughs> Deliberately. This was what I subtitled The Clash of the Titans when it, was, it went live on, on social media. Yes. Um, we, don't, we don't meet enough in person, uh, Jeff so that we can settle some of our differences that are often exacerbated by the fact that we have these arguments online uh, and they get out of hand. Right. Yes. I, I mean, um, I've, I've taken, you know, one of the big beefs is, um, is you know, emergentism and your, your take on that and uh, uh, one or two other things like um, Leo Sullivan's book and, and stuff like that. But I mean, I, I, I have to say, I, I, I'm delighted to talk to you now and I have absolutely no desire to, you know, get into a sort of bear baiting. Uh, I, I, I think that, you know, you're, you're delightful to talk to you as always. And um, I've got nothing but admiration for the contribution you've made to um, ELT. So I'm sorry to disappoint Neil. If he no, was I, was, I was thinking I'd have to, you know. Well, maybe, I don't know if Scott would be interested, but maybe we could get, get Scott back another time to talk about these issues, less to do with the ELT industry and more to do with questions of, of language and learning. And, and yes, I, I would love to do that. Uh, to get into some, you know, some of the stuff that we do disagree about, I think just, just to, to, because it, they're interesting to, to a lot of people, um, you know, how people vary our differences on views of how people learn uh, languages and, and, and a few things like that. I'd, I'd love to have the chance to uh, shoot the breeze with, with Scott. Yes, and I, I would agree. And I think, I mean, to scratch your back, um, Jeff, you've been very 
<laughs> generous, but to say that I miss your, as uh, Neil said at the beginning, I, I miss, I don't so much miss the tweeting because no. uh, too much tweeting, oi and dear, but um, I miss the blogs uh, because they got me, sometimes they made me cross, sometimes they made me think, uh, more often they made me think than they made me cross. Uh, and so that's been a particular contribution and you've been unique in that respect because you're able to, you have been able to bring down, as it were, from the academic theoretical research mountain, some of the findings that that particularly interest you and make them uh, accessible to the likes of me who have never been very, you know, who aren't sort of freeze-dried in linguistics, as it were. So um, I miss that, but I would relish the opportunity to discuss these issues with you. Oh, Neil's very good at organising these things. I, so let's do it. Uh, yeah. Do you want me to organise you both a room? <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a ring, did you say? Boxing? <laughs> no, a room, a room. I can get you a room in one of those love hotels in Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> too old for that, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean... I was rather thinking of, of wrestling in mud. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sure people would pay to see that. Maybe uh, uh, we could, uh, you know, uh, get a fun together or something. But, um, well, I think that would be a nice way to finish this, this peace on earth and mercy mild kind of approach because it's getting near Christmas. But uh, I don't know if either of you have got any last comments or takeaways from this conversation. No, I think we covered the waterfront. Uh, yeah, nice. happy, happy Christmas, Scott. Enjoy you yourself, too. and I hope to see you uh, soon. In the new year, definitely. You too. And, and thank you, Neil, for setting this up. It's been, uh, it's been most interesting and most enjoyable. Thank you, Scott. Uh, and I hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Well, let's see. Maybe we can get a round two with, with uh, focus on SLA and see if the, the words uh, Diane Larson Freeman are enough to trigger Jeff into the rage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Scott. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Okay. Bye -bye. Good luck, Scott. See you soon. So, thanks a lot for listening. If you do enjoy our show, please subscribe, rate, like, whatever you can do on whatever platform you use. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It really helps us. Thanks very much.